Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Tricia Bruce, sociologist and affiliate of the University of Notre Dame Center for the Study of Religion and Society. We talked to Tricia about the impact of technological development on social movements as well as social change. Focusing on the development of social media, she explores how the Me Too movement unfolded and what role Twitter played in it. Finally, she also explores the responsibility of social media and the tech industry in engaging with social movements. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Trisha Bruce, sociologist and affiliate at the Center for the Study of Religion and Society at the University of Notre Dame. Hi Trisha. Hi, thank you for having me. Trisha, we're really glad to have you with us tonight. So um, if, just to kind of like straight dive into um, the topic, can you tell me and our listeners a bit about um, your path um, in this space so far? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a sociologist and a sociologist of religion in particular. Um, but of course, sociologists are really mindful of, of social change and the way that social institutions morph over time. Uh, and And in terms of technology, technology is a huge driver of change. And so even in a space like religion, which is the area that I tend to focus on, uh, but also social movements, then, you know, we're mindful of, well, how is it that that movements and, and religion uh, change vis-a-vis -vis the way that people interact with each other and interact with technology? Mm. Yeah. How, how would you define a social movement? Uh, a social movement. You know, there's some uh, debate around this even. In some ways, it seems rather uh, obvious. I think sometimes we have an image in our mind of people out marching on the streets and protesting, and certainly that's a part of this larger conversation about what a movement is. Um, but, you know, what social movement scholars have come to, to recognize over time is that, you know, these, there are many ways to be uh, an activist, as it were, to promote change, Uh, whether it's oriented to the state or the government or even to another institution, uh, such as an educational field or a religious field, um, or even to culture more broadly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in its simplest form, we can think of a social movement as an effort to either promote or resist change, an organized effort to do so. Uh, but the contours of that are going to differ substantially in terms of what you're promoting, how you do it, uh, and what it looks like over time. Yeah. And uh, I'm curious, how, how do you see uh, technology? Oh, is that the current ways in which we, we live our lives today and impacted by technology, do you see affecting the way that that actually happens in action? Absolutely. Yeah, there, you know, one of the, the really interesting things about social movements and observing the changes in recent years has been how technology has reshaped uh, the ways in which people mobilize and gather around particular causes. I mean, if you think about it, uh, particularly the use of things like Twitter or uh, Facebook or WeChat or whatever it, it might be in the, in the various cultural contexts, these are avenues by which people can really rapidly uh, connect with mm -hmm. one another and uh, draw attention to a cause. 
there are many examples of this. I mean, one might be, um, uh, oh, certainly some years ago there was uh, a, a viral video that you know suddenly um, brought attention to a you know otherwise pretty isolated um, case of um, of uh, needed social change. And but yet, if a video gets viewed you know, millions of times, then, then people suddenly will realize more, ur more urgently, this is a, um, an area to mobilize. And at that point, it can either, um, you know, happen organically in terms of, of a new movement or a social movement organization that already exists may use that as a way to then spread uh, the word about an issue and to, to get people out and acting. Hmm. Are there any particular movements you're interested in at the moment? Yeah, so among the various movements who, that have uh, changed or been catalyzed by this would be um, the rise of the, the Me Too movement mm -hmm. as, as one example um, among many. So, I mean, this is an interesting one because uh, the Me Too movement, it, it, even in its phrasing, it, it's a, is a hashtag, you know, <laughs> so mm -hmm. it, it emerged from... A, essentially a Twitter conversation uh, that was, you know, there was a, a tweet that was posted by a celebrity um, actress, Alyssa Milano. And she, uh, in doing that, um, and there were a couple others too, um, but in so doing, uh, we're able to, to say, hey, the, the issue of, uh, in particular, sexual harassment in the workplace, um, mm. and a, a, a broader space of trying to um, to understand the, the um, poor treatment of, of women in particular, workplaces and beyond. Um, by her saying me too, it was, okay, suddenly there's a space for women in particular to voice um, their collective experiences. And, you know, the hashtag, and again, this sort of role of technology, and this is really interesting because the hashtag me too uh, signals something that is, is personal. You know, it's about me. But when you have hundreds and thousands mm. and millions of people using that same hashtag, then suddenly what would otherwise be seen as an individual problem uh, is then seen as a collective problem. It's a, it's a collective issue. Mm. And, you know, as, as a sociologist, uh, this is a, a classic demonstration of the sociological imagination. You know, it's, it's the, distinction that C. Wright Mills talked about for mm -hmm. you know, what's a personal trouble versus a public issue. So you may think, well, a personal trouble um, might be me losing my job, but a public issue would be thousands of people losing their jobs. And then you start to ask different questions or a, a personal uh, trouble of, of divorce and one person, one couple versus a, a public issue. And you're trying to understand patterns of divorce. So to link back to this, you know, if it's one person saying, Hey, I felt like I was harassed in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a particular response to it and a set of questions about, well, is that true? Is that, uh, you know, what were the circumstances of that? And maybe even, uh, questioning the, the person making the accusation. But suddenly, technology, and in this case, Twitter, made it a very collective issue and a public issue. And so it, it elevated the, uh, the strength of, of that movement uh, so it could take hold yeah. globally. Yeah. What, what do you think prevented it from happening before? The mobilization? Around this particular topic, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a great question too, because there there are so many forces that work against, in particular, uh, women's voices or um, voices that express things that might be considered otherwise private affairs or hidden affairs or you know, even when we look at the changes in gender relations over over time, you know, get under a sort of quote unquote traditional rubric of a divided division of, of um, or a division of labor in the household. Mm-hmm. Then uh, you know, women are were slash are uh, engaged in largely hidden care work. You know, um, whether it's care of children or care of the home, um, the private sector, um, and these are are very invisible activities. And so when you have things like situations of abuse or, or violence or harassment in the home, or mm-hmm. in this case, talking about more in the workplace, you know, there, there is a, there's a structure that tends to facilitate secrecy, mm-hmm. right? And, and it is, is built upon the sort of mutual agreement through social norms that say, hey, this is not a question you raise. Yeah. Or it, if you do, then there are consequences for it. Mm. I mean, for example, women certainly have been fired for making such accusations. Uh, and I think uh, in particular uh, for women of color, you know, all of these issues become that much more acute, whereas there are, are real consequences for this. So then, you know, if you think of this now as a, an issue that has come up in a more public way, it creates a, a veneer of safety almost. Mm-hmm. So something that was that might otherwise be very painful and difficult and personal and seen as quote unquote my fault or read as my fault, mm-hmm. then the power of a movement can allow those who might be abused or harassed or mistreated in various environments to voice that truth to power. Yeah, yeah, and it also kind of certain gives it a certain legitimacy or Right. Yeah. It does. It does. And one of the other things that that social movement scholars talk about too has to do with the this idea of uh, flash activism mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a this is a, an interesting term because the the parallel here or the metaphor is that uh, when you have a few drops of rain, you may think, okay, there's a single drop of rain. Maybe it lands on your windshield or something, and it's it doesn't make that big of a difference, right? You mm-hmm. think, okay, I'm not going to have to to run my windshield wiper or anything here. It's just a single drop of rain. Mm-hmm. But we all have been in situations, uh, weather-wise, where suddenly there's a torrential downpour, you know, and roads are flooded and they're unpassable and it is a huge interruption and it makes a big difference in terms of our ability to proceed in day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. So the parallel here for social movements is that we can think about one particular instance or one case, one accusation, as it were, to, to use the example of the Me Too movement, as a single raindrop, right? And it can be ignored, brushed away, not seen. And yet, if you put all those together, then it becomes uh, a much louder and interrupting force that says, hey, this is an issue that needs to be uh, taken seriously. Hmm. How do you see it 
move forward? How do you see it affecting the norms? Or do you see it affecting the norms? Maybe I was too directive in my question. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I think that, I mean, for one, the power of this kind of movement, and again, to link back to technology, the power of technology in this, and social media in particular, is that it is, it, it doesn't let it go away easily. <laughs> you know, um, in some ways we might think, okay, well, this is, this is a really lazy form of activism, right? This is not making a huge difference. This is not someone standing on the street or changing policy or even voting. Um, but in fact, what social movement scholars talk about too is that through this, this type of activity, you know, whether you call it flash activism or otherwise, this, you know, people are mobilizing, then that collective voice can actually begin to generate more meaningful change. So what might we see in terms of the norms of behavior? Well, I think for one, there's, there's a heightened sense of accountability or the recognizing that, hey, this is an, an issue that it has been going on for some time mm -hmm. and it's been hidden. It's been not addressed head on. And so workplaces, institutions, the leaders of corporations, businesses, higher ed, whatever it might be, need to take a hard look and realize, okay, what's, what in our company culture might be facilitating misbehavior, right? I mean, uh, a number of the examples from the Me Too movement came from various actresses who were trying to get a part in a play, right? Mm -hmm. And then And then we're, we're treated badly along the way in terms of, you know, being told, okay, in order to, to move ahead, here's what you need to do. So exposing that and then for companies to begin to say, okay, this is a, a cultural shift is needed in terms of new uh, norms of interaction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I, you know, I think also diversifying leadership matters a lot. You know, if you have a, a the vast majority of, of the boards of, CEO or of um, Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 companies are nearly entirely male, just by way of example. And so, if you you know if you have an all male board and most CEOs are male, and they're they're just a handful really of, of females who are at the tops of their corporations, then that again creates a structure that is going to increase the likelihood that these kinds of issues are going to be brushed under yeah. the table and. How do you see this type of movements uh, traveling different technological platforms? Do you see them travel? Mm. Do they see them intersecting in any form? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think a lot about as a sociologist. I think a lot about um, the the pace of different platforms. So something like social media has a super fast pace. So if there's an issue and someone wants to mobilize around a given cause or draw attention to something that's happening in the streets or something right mm -hmm. now, they do that. Uh, other platforms, you know, even newspapers and, and television, certainly fast, um, but not quite as fast. So slight slowdown there. So some additional depth to reporting and, and questioning and whatnot. And then, of course, then you get to academia and journals and books and that world and the pace slows down mm -hmm. more so because there's um there it takes time to generate the empirical data behind it to write it to go through the process of, of peer review but i think that the great thing about this 
that the difference between those platforms or this process indicates that, hey, you know, you're digging deeper into these questions. Mm-hmm. So one technology is going to put in our, you know, right in our faces and our news feeds, as it were, um, hey, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And then other platforms will facilitate more of this kind of deep inquiry. And that's the, the kind of stuff. And I say this, of course, as someone who's in the world of academia, but but I, I do think that that kind of stuff matters substantially in terms of long-term change. You know, yeah. you have to begin to dig in and understand what are some of the key structural components uh, behind these issues. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a question in my mind, so I'm sorry for not being very sharp with it because I'm formulating it as I speak. But I was wondering, you know, one of the great assumptions around social media is that there are no hierarchies of power embedded in, in them, right? And then it's the voice of the people and it reflects the voice of the people without being filtered through those that sit behind the screen and decide this is worth telling, this is worth sharing. So I I wonder if, if you agree with this when it comes to this type of movements. Is there, and, and you know, that's also a reflection on the people behind the, the medium, no? And how much do they certain they they choose to direct certain types of messages, trans, uh, amplify or re- reduce maybe the the potential of certain messages to to reach a wider audience? What do you think? Yeah. Yes. This is a huge issue. You know, we I think optimistically can think of particularly social media as the democratization mm. of voice, right? Yeah. Around. Yeah these kind of issues and suddenly the person that that didn't have a mm. a local national platform has one and and can potentially really amplify an issue in meaningful ways so in this way it sort of flattens power structures mm. existing ones in terms of sort of formal spheres of, of organization yeah. but you know i you're you're getting at this really that there's another side to this you know there's there's another issue here too which is that behind some of this technology is and some of the people on the technology are dynamics that actually can reinforce those same power structures mm-hmm. so and i would say those are both cultural and structural so mm-hmm. for example on the cultural side you know who gets retweeted and yeah. i think there are there's dynamics of um of gender at play of race at play And, you know, some people are, are pretty conscious about, well, who am I retweeting? You know, whose stuff am I reading? What does my feed look like? And if we're not even diversifying our feeds, then that's not going to do much by way of mm-hmm. elevating voices. So I think that there there's some of that going on that, that may or may not be conscious. And then there are also structural issues happening, too. You know, we've heard a lot about mediums such as Facebook being, you know, pawns of a larger system mm. in, in terms of whether it's in politics or partisanship. And, mm. and some of that is by choice. Certainly people uh, cre- create a, you know, they filter out things that they may not want to hear and therefore they get a more siloed experience of it. But some of it is without our conscious doing, you know, um, some of it, uh, you know, as, as we're learning more and more as we kind of understand the role of big data is actually 
you know, to put it harshly, like messing with our minds, you know, so, and, and this is, uh, this is deeply problematic. And so I think that in the same way that we might look to the leaders of organizations who speak with a formal voice on behalf of so-and-so, I think we also have to critique and question the underlying assumptions and premises that, that drive even what might seem like a more democratized space. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, coming back to this topic of, of Me Too and Twitter, have you have you seen it or do you know of it also traveling other maybe less Eurocentric worlds or types of conversations that are not necessarily Twitter? Right. Maybe some of the platforms in, yeah. in Asia or uh, in some other continents. Do you? Do you I, I personally don't, so I'm very curious if you know something around yeah. that. You know, I did at one point see a fascinating map online that tracked, I think it was still through the, the use of the hashtag, so it was mm. still limited by media platforms in that way, but it, it showed around the globe where this had taken off, mm. and it's really kind of phenomenal. It, and yeah, this is a, a case of an example of um, someone in the, the U.S. And, and someone quite privileged, I would add. And I think that's a part of this story yeah. who starts this, mm. this movement. But then that, that privileged is, is capitalized upon and, and spreads. Yeah. You know, at, the, at the same time, I think we have to recognize that, that not all technology is equally accessible to all groups, you know, mm. whether in terms of geography or class or even regulations by governments that, that might make mm -hmm. that less possible to, to hear. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and this I think, takes away the potential power of, of a movement. And, uh, and I don't think we have to go too far into a you know, conspiracy theory of, of sorts just to recognize that, again, power matters here. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my first book was about the crisis of um, a movement that mobilized in response to the crisis of abuse in the Catholic church. And, and I think that's another interesting example that, and it came about at a different, uh, you know, I studied it back in 2001. And so mm. we had different media and technology platforms at that time, but I think it provides another interesting example of how there's this interplay of the grassroots, but also existing institutional authorities that, you know, might ways of negotiating and pushing forward or inhibiting change yeah. that may come about. Yeah. So, Can you say a few words about that particular case? Sounds, sounds really interesting. Yeah, for sure. In, and I think it's an interesting contrast to the Me Too movement too, because mm. uh, the, the 2001 mm. or really it was sort of 2002, uh, Uh, crisis of abuse as it emerged was really catalyzed by reporting by the Boston Globe. And so the newspaper uh, did a lot to, you know, it was a front page story about a priest who had been accused of, credibly accused of abusing uh, children mm -hmm. and then was passed from parish to parish and the parishioners not told of that. And so I think that You know, in, in that case, all of a sudden there was outrage and there was, uh, you know, the, the group that I studied was a, a group of lay Catholics who were committed to the church but wanted to see real change. Mm -hmm. They started meeting in the basement of, uh, of their church and then the, the movement spread from there to, you know, in more recent, just this last year, suddenly the crisis of abuse 
is as bad. I mean, it's, it's never really gone away, but somehow it keeps rearing its head. And to me, it's, it has been really interesting to see how, again, the role of technology has, I think, amplified and spread the message of both the crisis itself and potential responses to it mm-hmm. in ways that I definitely did not see in, in the early 2000s. Um, I don't know if that means that it's going to create more change. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I think mm-hmm. we can be optimistic, but, but it certainly has changed and perhaps even made more painful because it's more visible. Yeah, um, this, yeah. uh, it personalizes it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think particularly in that case, right? Because you can't really divorce it from what that person stands for, no? So then how do you how do you mitigate those 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 coming to terms to, with those things, no? It's it's very interesting. Um do you see how do you say in that particular case did you see the the social aspect of the medium also act as a kind of a sense-making tool for for those groups? Yeah, I you know, I think that that the media can and the, the medium to yeah. um, really shape how a group sees itself. And I mm-hmm. think it does a lot in terms of an identity for an organization. And that can be a really powerful thing. So, you know, we saw this happen last year, two years ago with the, the rise of the, the women's March and you know, the massive protests in January a couple of years ago, I guess it was, and that, you know, needed an identity too. So there was something about the, the media and the platform that really helped to shape a, a movement that otherwise was just a, a conversation or a frustration or a feeling of um, urgency, but powerlessness. So I think suddenly the, you know, having a medium to connect these pieces can create a sense of efficacy uh, and that certainly was the case for the movement that, that I studied. You know, it took that sense of identity and a name, you know, because it was just of the faithful. And and then you kind of from there to have emergent leaders and begin to create an, an organizational structure that will um, go beyond just your first few people that get involved. And so I think having a, a medium or, or technology or a, an avenue to that is really crucial and something that distinguishes social movement today from ones uh, some time ago. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you see it having similar effects on structure or it's, it's not that clear to see how it affects structure or power in that, in that particular case since you've been following it for um, quite some time? You know, I... It's a good question. I mean, I think that some of the same questions about identity that surfaced very early on for this particular movement probably still exist. However, you know, in time, as with any social movement that then translates into a social movement organization, if you are able to you know, provide the resources in terms of people power and fundraising and institutional connections, then that can, uh, you know, I- increase the efficacy of a, of a movement. But, you know, it's, it's also hard anytime you study a movement for some time, you know, asking yeah. about, are, are they actually making a, are they actually making a difference? It's always hard to measure outcomes, yeah. you know, <laughs> same with, even with the, the same question you asked about me, the Me Too movement, you know, is it, is it really making a difference? Does it have meaningful outcomes? And I think it's, you know, part of that is one of those things you kind of, you look to the future to look back on the history, you know, to know whether or not 
things made a difference. Yeah, I, um, I, I wonder, they're both such, such big topics, right? Like for me, from my perspective, looking at the Catholic Church and, and the role of spirituality in, in, in Western societies and how, how we choose the symbols for that and how they get signified and resignified through, through the years. It's, there are like some, some big questions, right, that collectively we need to kind of go through and sense make about what, what is that. And I, I just get the feeling that this Catholic, I, I think Catholicism, Christianity has been in this kind of like struggle for redefinition and identity for quite a while. But to a certain extent, so has patriarchy. <laughs> so <Sure>. it's, uh, <laughs> they're the both, <laughs> they're very connected also between them. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 like difficult topics to kind of see how how we sense make together, uh, how we sense make as a as a society of this and how it progresses. Probably have to right. be like very specialized in in these topics to uh, to go to go deeper into it. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I would just say that you're exactly right, and I think there's this parallel that you know, you're asking whose message is it, right? And and how is that message filtered, mm. whether through traditional structures of power and access or through technology and who's saying it and how it gets said is absolutely going to uh, shape uh, how yeah. it is read. But, you know, for me, but maybe I'm just terribly wrong on this, but for, to a certain extent, these type of movements are also maybe signals in society of, of areas that need changing, right? Like, like maybe we need collective reflection on, 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 on some concepts that we need to, as collective, as human beings, need to start changing or evolving. Or uh, I see personally these movements as, as, as these tension points that kind of allow us as a, as a larger entity, a space for reflection and redefinition. And to a certain extent, I'm thinking like when it comes to patriarchy and religion, like these are just topics like these things come and, you know, they open up a space for joint reflection and, and, and discussion. And, okay, so where do we see these pockets of discussion kind of leading into, into structural changes? Because I think, I mean, to a certain extent, structure is institutionalization of, of collective beliefs, right? So, yeah. but, but they're, they're big topics. So I, I, I wonder where they, where they start kind of showing us the, the path towards the future. Yes. There, the other thing that, that came to mind too when you mm. were talking through that is, um, so I, I've taught classes before on disaster, and uh -huh. some of some of the um, the literature on disaster talks about disaster as a focusing event, mm. and and there's a really powerful thing about that. Yeah. So if you have suddenly a case like Chernobyl and yeah. there's a massive, yeah. you know, nuclear, then everyone talks about um, nuclear power and and the good and the bad of it. You know, if you have a massive shooting, then you talk about um, gun violence or the role of guns. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a parallel here in the sense that these issues are already there. Mm. You know, this is not new. Um, whether it's yeah patriarchy, whether it's um, issues of of racism or sexism or you know privilege and inequality or whatnot you know these things are there but mm. sudden, sometimes and this is a really powerful thing when you have an incident or an event or a moment then that becomes the focusing event so you have you know whether it's a viral video or you have a, a hashtag that takes off or you have a perhaps someone was there in person with their when they're with their camera when someone was um, victimized in some way and that goes viral right and so suddenly that becomes the focusing event and the tipping point mm. for 
a much broader conversation and hopefully also social change that begins to address the underlying causes. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Tricia, a a connecting question to this topic was, okay, so we say that these are like moments of tipping point. So turning back the lens towards those that sit behind the development of this type of social technologies, where where do you see their responsibility in hosting uh, or enabling that type of space? Like, how can we, let's say, I, I, uh, I'm behind the, the doors of Twitter or Facebook or Google. Um, what can I do to kind of, as, as part of that company, to, to properly host this kind of movements? Right. Well, you know, I think that freedom of speech is a good thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And I think that, that um, you know, government plays a role in this, um, as well as business. And there's a limit to that, of course, we know, and, and I don't have a, a law degree to go into the intricacies of that. But suffice it to say that, you know, having the ability to voice uh, concerns and share them and find a collective platform is really valuable. And I would say, too, it's a it's a privilege that we should not take for granted uh, because it is not equally shared um, in all spaces around the globe. And so I think and then also, of course, exercising the right to to vote accordingly. But that's a that's a separate issue. But in terms of you yeah, have responsibility, you know, this is corporations have a very powerful role to play and those who lead them have a very powerful role to play. Hmm. And I think, you know, as a sociologist, I am, you know, I, I urge, you know, my students, the ones who are majoring in business, you know, Hey, the, you, you, oftentimes the line is, it's the bottom line, it's economic incentive, but you know, there, there are, greater goods. And I think we could say greater ills too. Um, and one of the greater goods that, that we can encourage is talking to each other collectively along lines of difference, elevating these issues that do speak to some of the core of perhaps limitations around human flourishing and, and how can we activate that? Now, those are big ideas. Um, so maybe in practice, it's a little harder to do. But I would hope that these platforms can, you know, leverage or connect to those, uh, you know, the power that the people have, right? The, the power of the people. And this is something that goes well beyond the boardroom, as it were. Thank you so much for this answer. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good kind of platform to start to start to think around these topics. I think uh, we've we've talked a lot here on the podcast about ethics and and development and and how. How do you start deconstructing this uh, this complex topic into into something that you can do, for example, as a researcher or as a product developer or owner? So yeah, thank you for that observation. It was quite good. I'm very much aware that we 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 don't have much time left. So I was wondering because you are also a, a teacher, like how would you how would you let's say if if your students come to you with the intention of maybe going outside of academia working in this in these spaces of technology how would you advise them to approach it yeah well i think you know for one uh, my one of my aims as a, a as a mentor mm-hmm. as a as a teacher is to empower a wide array and diversity of voices from from the outset and so you know my my hope and message to those who are in a position really to, um, to mentor others is to, 
not only to mentor others that look like oneself, but those who look really different from oneself. Um, and I think as we encourage a next generation of leaders that are you know, diverse on a variety of fronts, whether it's in terms of race or class background or um, immigrant background or whatnot, then that's going to that's going to give us a better and richer conversation that we can um, that might have a real difference in some of these these kinds of big issues that we're we're broadening. So you know, I, it's a message of hope and encouragement, I guess I would say, even for even if for those who who might hear messages otherwise, like oh, you shouldn't do that, or women don't code, or mm-hmm. um, why don't you try something else, or you're yeah. not oh, math is so hard. I'm not good at math. You know, I think we hear a lot of these messages and yet there are models of something different. And I think there's a real hope for a future that better includes this variety of, uh, this variety of voices. We can uh, do a better job of cultivating that. Ah, I love this. That's great. Well, (laughs) thank you. Thank you so much, Trisha, for, uh, for being with us today. Yeah, it was a pleasure having you. Likewise. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.